So if you've been here in recent weeks, you might know, I'm going to move this over here so I don't get distracted with other reading materials when I preach. But if you've been here for the last few weeks of this series, you know we, we show this bright and cheery bumper video uh, for the Summer of Psalms. And, and Josiah and I were talking this morning and we said, well, let's not do that because it just doesn't fit this psalm. Um, this is a psalm that shows us the darkest hours of our Savior Jesus Christ. And I find it absolutely amazing and fascinated to, to be reading this psalm that was written a thousand years, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, before his first advent. We have what David wrote would be word for word what Jesus Christ endured. Charles Spurgeon says that this psalm is the psalm of the cross. A psalm of the cross. And he writes this. He says, It's a photograph of our Lord's saddest hours. A record of his dying words. The lacrimatory of his last tears. The memorial of his expiring joys. By the way, that word lacrimatory, I had to look that up. It was a vial that would, someone would hold around their neck that would have tears of their mourning, of their darkest times that would remember those times of trial. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. Before us we have a description of both the darkness and of the glory of the cross. The sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall soon follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground in all of the scripture, it is to be found right here. If there's holy ground in the scriptures, it's right here. This is the holy ground of the scriptures. The psalms that point us to Jesus Christ are the psalms that we both see the horror and agony, but also the glory of the event of the cross. And when I talk about the cross, I want you to realize that when I talk about the cross, I'm I'm not talking about just simply a a crucifixion, the, the, the event that happened on that day. But when I talk about the cross, I, I talk about the event that the Bible pointed to. That the whole Bible points to one thing. And that one thing stands out above all other things. And that is the cross. That is that the cross of Jesus Christ would be central to the Word of God. And it is central to the Word of God. And that the cross of Christ would be central not only to the Word of God, but also to our very lives. Why would David write this psalm a thousand years before the coming of Christ? For what reason would we have such an account that is exactly the picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the tree? Why would we have this a thousand years before the reign of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter says, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter says that 
the prophets, when they wrote of these things, they, they inquired the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God. They searched Him. And in the Spirit of God, when they wrote these things, they wrote these things not only for themselves, but for you. So that you would see that the cross was no accident. So that you would see that the cross was a part of God's plan from the past to the present to the future. So that you would see and be humbled by the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And so that the cross would be known when it happens as God's fingerprint on salvation. That this is all about Jesus Christ. And the cross not only encompasses the death of Christ, but the salvation that comes from it. It encompasses the resurrection. The Holy Spirit who quickened our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead will surely quicken our souls from the grave. And we have it here in writing 1,000 years before it actually took place. It's so believable. It's unbelievable. It's so amazingly good that we can only surrender to it today. And that's my prayer. Would you pray this prayer? Or would you join me in as I pray this prayer? Lord, open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. And open our hearts that we might believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim Keller says that what this describes here is not simply the things that happened to David. David didn't have nails pierce his hands, although he wrote about it metaphorically. He didn't have nails pierce his feet, although he wrote about it metaphorically. He was mocked, he was cursed, but he wasn't in the same way as the the person here that we see in the psalm. Tim Keller says this is not describing illness or persecution, but rather execution. It's describing the crucifix, the cross, which was at that point not even invented. Rome invented it as a way of them declaring their victory over their enemies. God would use it to declare his victory over his enemies and salvation for his people. And here we have two things that are going to be seen so very vividly and are going to give us some good answers as to why this happened. Number one, we see that there is a cry of the cross. See that in verses 1 through 18. There is a cry of the cross. See that very clearly. Verses 19 through the end, verse 31, you're going to see that there's an answer. There's the why of the cross. Verses 19 through 31. So you have the cry of the cross and the why of the cross. And the cry of the cross one is one that begins with desertion. Christ is left alone. He's forsaken. You know, Jesus was so filled with the words of God that it spewed from his lips, that it came from his lips even when he was on the cross. He, was, he is the word of God. And it wasn't that Jesus was thinking, what verse can I quote right here, right now? No. This is his being. This is who he is. And he says these same words. Eloi. Eloi. Lamak Sabathani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken on that day by God. He was left alone 
God turned his back on him. Here is the sinless Son of God bearing the weight of our sins, and he is forsaken. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had the comforting presence of an angel. But here he had no one. You've all been through difficult times when you have hoped someone would be there for you, somebody that really mattered in your life in that moment. And you've felt the the pain of them not being there when you needed them most. And Jesus Christ was feeling the pain of the most important person, God the Father, in His life, not being present with Him on the cross, that God hid His face from Him, forsaken on that day. He was abandoned so that we would never be abandoned. None of us can cry this same cry. None of us can pray the same prayer in the same way that Jesus was. You might feel alone. You've probably gone through suffering. You've probably gone through hard times to where you felt absolutely alone. You felt the anguish of no one being around you. But li- listen, it's really important for us to realize that, that we're never alone if Jesus Christ is our everything. Because He was the only one that was left alone. Even if you might have no one physically around you, the people that you love and care about, God is there. He is with you. Because there was one day where he wasn't with Jesus. Because there was one point in time, the dark hour of the cross, where he had left Jesus Christ alone hanging on the tree. Because that's what our sin required. That's the punishment that we deserved. And that's the punishment that Jesus felt. There was no calming assurance for him. There was only silence. But yet he still cries. He still still echoes this verse because he knows that even though God isn't there, God will answer. We've had prayers that we've been prayed in our lives that God didn't answer. I'm sure you all have experienced unanswered prayer and some of the disappointment that comes alongside of it. Well, well, I want, I want you to see that there's a better example of unanswered prayer than, than you or anybody you've ever known, and that's Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he was sweating blood in anguish, he prayed, God, if it be your will, take this cup from me. If it be your will, take this cup from me. He knew the road he had to march to the cross. He knew the difficulty of it. And even Jesus prayed. You want to know how hard the cross is? Even Jesus prayed that God would take that cup from him. But instead, God gave him that cup and Jesus drank down every last ounce that was in it. So that we would never be forsaken. And in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we know that we haven't been abandoned. John Piper says, that moment was probably the worst moment in the history of the world. And it was Scripture fulfilled. The worst moment in the history of the world was Scripture fulfilled, predicted by the prophets, fulfilled by the Son. 
And that, in that moment, the anguish on the cross and the gloom of that day shined the brightness of hope for deliverance. You know, this psalm doesn't let us have a casual view of sin. It doesn't allow it. The cross doesn't allow us to have a casual view of sin. It shows us the depths that God would go in order to see to it that sin would be killed. It shows us the depths that God would go to show us just how far from Him we've gone. And so there's no little white lie There's no excusable sin. No, no, all sin was never excusable. It was all placed on him. And that was the punishment that he took for your sin. And it was through that punishment that we can see the anguish of our sin and just how treasonous it was against a holy and righteous God. We're seeing in the next two verses, or verse three verses, verses three through five, we see the past faithfulness of God. There is a moment where Jesus remembers the faithfulness of God on the fathers of our faith. That Abraham may have been in view here. Remember, Abraham had to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. He was called to sacrifice his only son on the altar. And he goes to the altar with his son as the sacrifice. And God comes through with another sacrifice. There would be a sacrifice that would substitute the sacrifice of Isaac so that Abraham's son Isaac would not have to be sacrificed. But the ram would be sacrificed. Here you are, Abraham. Don't sacrifice your son. And the ram symbolizes that God the Father would sacrifice his only son. That Abraham would not have to sacrifice his son, his only son, his beloved son, the son whom he prayed for, because God would sacrifice his only son, his beloved son, to meet the demands of the sacrifice that must be paid for our sins. God came through. Would God come here would God come through here for Jesus in his darkest hour? Would there be another sacrifice? No, there wouldn't be. Because there had to be a once and for all sacrifice. The sacrifice the sacrifice of animals were not sufficient. The blood of bulls and goats and rams couldn't cover the sins of man for all eternity. But Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God on the altar, that would be sufficient. So Jesus knew that God would leave him alone. Jesus knew that God would not answer his prayer. Even in the mockery where they say, where is your God now? Jesus Christ stayed faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross. He stayed obedient even when God was silent. Isn't that when we want to leave God? When God is silent? When we think that God is not with us? Aren't there a multitude of people who have pushed eject on God because something didn't happen in accordance with their way and their will? Well, here you have Jesus who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, because it was the will of God that he should be crushed. And it's the will of God that we should see that crushing being done for us that he would bear that wrath. 
Suffering teaches us something. We often ask, what's the point of suffering? Why do I have to endure this? Why do I have to go through this? God knows that suffering is one of the greatest schools that we could be a part of. God knows that in that suffering, we are trained to cry out to him. God knows that in that suffering, we learn how to be desperate. We learn how to be dependent upon him. And in that dependence upon God, God is there in our suffering. He is present in our suffering. And it's because he wasn't present there in the suffering of Jesus. It's because he left Jesus alone that we can suffer with God's presence and we can know his power in our suffering. That in God's presence, he is mending our brokenness. In verses 6 through 8, we see that Jesus says of himself, and I say Jesus here because although David said it, Jesus experienced it. In verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. I want you to think about the greatest sin that you would ever imagine being committed. The sin that would, would maybe be one that you would think is unforgivable. And I want you to see that on the cross of Christ. And I want you to understand when the psalmist says that I'm a worm of a man, he's declaring that he has become sin for mankind. That the sin that you just imagined, murder, adultery, pedophilia, you can name it and how vile and disgusting and gross it is, it bore down on the sun that day and he forgave it. Islam doesn't offer that. Islam doesn't offer that, friends. No other religion offers that. Jesus Christ offers that. Complete and full and final forgiveness. Because he became low so that we could reign high. He was humbled so that we could be exalted. This is the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he was crucified between two criminals. You wouldn't expect that of the Son of God. The king who left the throne of heaven to be spending his last day on earth between two criminals. To have his mom weeping at the foot of the cross. To have the crowds mocking and jeering him and saying and cheering on his death. The Pharisees looked at Jesus and they said, come down from there if you're the son of God. Save yourself. He had a sign over his head that they fashioned saying, Jesus, king of the Jews. Not because they believed he was king, but because they wanted to mock him. They fashioned a crown of thorns as it pierced into his brow. When he says, I'm a worm of a man, you see him in its utter humiliation. It's a tragedy. You know why we have the emblem of the cross on gravestones? If you drive through Greenwood Cemetery, which I highly recommend, it's just around the corner from here, one of the most pretty places in all of Orlando. And in that cemetery, there are reminders all over the place. And it's the cross of Christ, probably the, the, the most vivid 
image that you would see in that cemetery is the cross all over the place. And why is the cross on the emblem of these graves, of so many graves? Because it tells us that there's hope beyond the grave. Because it tells us that even if we go down into the depths, we will be raised again. Because Jesus became a worm so that we wouldn't have to. So that we could be dignified. And so that we would have the dignity, not that we deserve, but that he deserves. Do you see that Jesus became undignified for that? That there is no dignity in his death. That there is no dignity in that time. Probably one of the most meaningful moments in my study this past week as I studied this psalm was right here in in 9 through 11. Where Jesus recounts from the cross, although you don't see it here, you see it in the Gospel of John. He remembers his mother. And he says, John, take care of my mother. And so Jesus on the cross is remembering his mom. From my mother's breast you took care of me. From her womb you delivered me. He remembers the past care of God upon his life. I mean, yesterday we were pulling weeds. My wife went out to run a few errands and I took my kids out to teach them some good, healthy, and hearty chores. (laughs) Oh my goodness, you talk about terror. It was... Like pulling weeds. How many of you like pulling weeds? Any hands go up? We've got a couple. We've got a couple. We could, we could sign up a work day at my house. So I'm going to teach my kids responsibility. And it's about 95 degrees in the hot, sweltering sun. Even the dog's hiding under the shade. And here are my kids pulling weeds. And my son says, I wish mommy was here. <laughs> Have you ever been so sick that you just want your mom? I mean, I can't help but think that Jesus here, the humanity of Christ, to want his mother, the Virgin Mary, who held him at his chest, at her chest, and she would care for him, and she's standing there at the foot of the cross with no ability to do anything to help him. And he's barely recognizable to her because of what he's just endured. And he remembers God's faithfulness through his mother. And this remembrance here, I think, is important for us to remember. David Strain says, Reread your life story with a covenant keeping God as the central character, not yourself, but the God of faithful love. You have to look back in order to look forward. You have to look at those past moments of darkness and see God's deliverance. And it may not have turned out the way you thought. Chances are it turned out very differently. But one of the things that your testimony, because you're here right now, and you're living, and you're breathing, and you're sitting under the Word of God, is that God did save you. And that God was faithful to you. And you should write those moments down. You should journal those moments down. You should see the story of your life connected to the faithful promise of God. You should write those moments down. You should see those moments 
in your life and realize that they're a good gift. And Jesus Christ was seeing it. He was seeing it. Even though He would die, He was seeing it. And then Christ would submit Himself to humiliation. There's the cry of desertion where He's left alone, and now there's the cry of humiliation. None of us want to be humiliated. None of us want to be stripped of dignity, and that's what Jesus was stripped of. He was utterly humiliated. It was a spectacle of death. It was a spectacle that Jesus was putting on in that moment. And the world was watching and they were cheering. There were enemies around him. The enemies, the bulls, the dogs, the lions. Those were the Pharisees. They were the, the crowd of Rome that mocked him in that day. They were the Jews that wanted him to see him be put to death. They were humiliating him. As he was taking his last breath, they were cheering for his death. I think it's really important for us to see that these are the enemies of God. But at the same time, I think it's really important to say that we are those enemies, or we were those enemies, better yet. John Stott says, in order for us to see that the cross was something done for us, we need to see that it was something that was done by us. You, your voice was in that mockery. And so is mine. John Stott says, if we were in their place... We would have done what they did. Indeed, we would have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. See, even sin today on this side of the redemption of Jesus Christ is sin that pains the Father because it's sin that brought upon the Son disgrace. That sin that we have committed when we turn our backs on Christ is the sin where we are in our voices among the crowd say, God, I don't want you. I want what I want, and if you get in the way of that, I will crucify you. Isn't that this world? Isn't that this world? If somebody crosses us, if somebody gets in our way, if somebody gets in, 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 in what we want to be accomplished, crucifixion takes place. It doesn't just happen outside of the church. It happens in the church. It doesn't just happen outside of you or to you. It happens by you. It already happened by you in Jesus Christ. To see that is so important because... It, It's in seeing that that causes us to see just how much forgiveness we need. To notice that our actions matter and our actions cause disgrace not only to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but disgrace to the church. And the redemption that God offers to humanity. If we would repent of our sins. It would show the world that God is faithful to save. Not because we have repented, but because we have believed that He is. That we would believe that He is. Horatius Bonner says, "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed Him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. We were among that crowd. As Jesus' life wasted away, 
His bones were exposed. He could count every one of them. The breath was leaving his lungs. His heart was slowing. His body was turning cold until he says it is finished. And he gave up his life with that final breath. That was the undignified end of our Savior. But it wasn't the end. And what we see following the cry of the cross is why. Why the cross? Why would Jesus have to die? Why is the cross so important to Christianity? Why is it so significant? In the why of the cross, we see that deliverance is the result. And this the psalmist declares in verse 19. The psalmist says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What was the greatest tragedy of mankind on one day was also the greatest delight and joy of God the Father as He delivered all of humanity through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went down into the grave and He came out victorious. He defeated the lion of sin by going down there with His shepherd's staff and knocking the lion's teeth out. He defeated the dogs and their vicious attacks by defeating death because death stayed in the grave. He defeated Satan by throwing him into the lake of fire so that he has no ownership of you. He defeated it all. He was victorious over it all. God did deliver him from that, but God let him go down there to gain the victory because if there was no death of Jesus, there would be no deliverance of us. And so God allowed Jesus to go down to the death so that he might be delivered. And with him, he might bring the captives, those who were down there waiting for their eternal punishment, who were delivered from that eternal punishment because Jesus Christ paid their penalty in full. He was delivered from death. And Satan has no say-so now. Satan had no say-so over Jesus' life. Satan thought that he was winning, but guess what? Jesus Christ was victorious. Rome thought that they were putting up Jesus as a spectacle or an enemy. Now that cross is worn with pride because Jesus Christ defeated the cross. He made the cross the emblem of Christianity, the hope of the gospel, so that we could experience that deliverance, that salvation, that grace. We don't deserve it but he gives it to us. A gal who's an author named Christina Fox writes this. She says, When our Savior cried those words from Psalm 22, he was bearing the full weight of our sins in the full wrath of his Father. Why have you forsaken me was indeed answered. Only because Christ was forsaken could Paul proclaim, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the finality of sin and the wrath of God for the Christian happened 2,000 years ago. And the finality of sin that is upon Jesus Christ is now given us deliverance and freedom.
You, you have to believe that. You have to believe that, not just for your sins past committed, because you might stand here a condemned man or woman on the basis of what you have done, or you might stand here a condemned man or woman by the basis of what you are doing, or maybe in the future you don't know what's going to happen, how far you'll turn your back on God, but that sin would condemn you as well. Jesus Christ counts it as a debt paid. It's done. It's finished. You're delivered. You see the hope that the gospel offers us? A hope that this world cannot offer. Riches and wealth cannot give it to us. But Jesus Christ himself gives it to us. So that we would be redeemed. So that we would be set free. So that we would worship. That's the other why of the cross. That we would be delivered, number one, and that we would worship. That we would know that our soul's delight comes not in worshiping the created things, but worshiping our Creator, who Jesus walks us to Him and says, there He is. He's in the congregation of His brothers. He became one of us. You know the story of the lost younger brother, the, parable son, the, the prodigal son, who says, God, I'm gonna, or he says to the Father, I'm going to cash out, I'm going to take my inheritance right now, and then he goes and he goes to Las Vegas and he just lives this wild and lavish life and it lasts him about two minutes before he finds himself in a pigsty wishing he could be back home and he's rehearsing in the pigsty this speech that he would give to his father because he, if, if he was a servant in his father's household he would live so much better than living in that pigsty. And so the father is on the front porch and he's waiting and looking and wanting to see when this son would one day return. And sure enough, in the distance, the son comes home. And the father sees him. And he runs out to meet him. And the son is trying to, to give this speech that he's been practicing so that the father would let him back in. And the, the, the father says, silence. I'm not hearing anything of it. I don't want to hear any of it. You're not going in the cabin in the back as a servant. No, no, you're coming in the house. And here's the ring that says that you're my son. And here's the robe that represents that he's a part of the household. And let's go ahead and kill the fattened calf. And let's tell everybody we're having a party because my lost son has come home. But then there's the older brother. And the older brother was glad to see his younger brother gone. Because the younger brother was always a threat. And now that the younger brother's back, he's getting, enough, he's getting back his inheritance. And guess what? The older son doesn't get as much of the inheritance. And so he's mad. And he's judgmental. And he's wishing his younger, younger brother was dead right now. You know what this psalm tells us? The book of Hebrews actually mentions it. Is that Jesus is not that older brother that we see in the story of the prodigal son. But Jesus is the perfect older brother. He's not the older brother that wished that the younger brother would never come home. No, he's the older brother that goes and gets the younger brother and brings him before the father and says, Father, I found him. He's here. He's here. Your son has returned and I've brought him to you. That we might worship as the congregation of God. Nobody can do that but Jesus. 
And Jesus brings us before the Father in delight so that our voices are not one of despair or hopelessness, but our voices are ones of praise and thanksgiving because God has saved us. Because we are that younger brother who's been brought home. Or we maybe even are that older brother in our own self-righteousness that have been delivered because Jesus Christ, our perfect older brother, brought us back through the cross. He does not despise the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him that even in your darkest hour, even when you think in your unworthiness that God, that you don't deserve God, God says, I hear your cry. And I bring to you forgiveness and grace and salvation. And I make you a part of my family. Listen, we are brothers and sisters. And we have a perfect heavenly father. And we have in Jesus Christ a perfect brother who saves us so that we can be called sons and daughters of the Most High. So that we can be adopted by this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. This psalm was written 3,000 years ago, but your name's in it because you were a people yet unborn whose name was in the heart of God when, the, when Jesus was crucified. Your name was on his heart. Your name was graven on his hand, was written on his heart because Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest is pleading in heaven and he is saying your name And God is counting your sins against Jesus. And Jesus is giving you his forgiveness. There are more people that God chooses to save. And so we must declare his name. We must be evangelists of this great message. Because without Jesus Christ, without the message of salvation, there is nothing for them but an undignified death in hell for all eternity. But in Christ, he seeks to save those who are lost, who are far off. In Christ, he seeks to bring them to the Father. And that we might, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be that example. That we might go to the lost younger brother, younger sister, You've got them in your family. You've got them in your apartment complex. You've got them in your neighborhood. You've got them in your workplace. That we might go and bring them from the depths and take them to the Father and say, Here, Father, they're home. And then they might hear the marvelous mystery of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness he has to offer. We worship. We worship because he has done it. The final words on the, on the cross of Christ was, I have done it. It is finished. Because he has done it. We are saved. And this world has hope. Now go and be a worshiping people. Go and be a people of the cross. Go and be a people that say, take my life, Lord. That riches don't matter. That possessions don't matter. That my job doesn't matter. That what matters most is that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and that He is saving a lost and broken world. So my job, my wealth, my family, everything that I have belongs to Him. That we would live in that way.
that the Holy Spirit right now would put it into our DNA, that he would work it through us. And that would be breathing, living sacrifices of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to live your lives as sacrifices, to offer your bodies as sacrifices to God. For this is holy and acceptable to him. Let this be your act of worship. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. We come before you with humility. We shed our tears with joy. God, I pray that this does not escape us today. That the horror of the cross is the glory of Christ. And that, God, we would see both the reality of it and the deliverance from it. And that, God, it would be ours right now. Right now, it would be ours. That everyone would say, this is mine. This is mine. I got it. It's mine. He's given it to me. I haven't done anything to earn it. I don't deserve it. But yet, he gave it to me. And so, God, we receive it. And we take your broken body. And we eat of that broken body. Knowing, God, that we were among the mockery. But you still forgave us. And, God, we drink of the cup because we know that your blood was shed because of our sins and that our sins are not counted unto us, but they're counted unto you and your righteousness is given to us. And so, God, we receive that broken body and shed blood with wholehearted thanksgiving. May we weep. May we shout with joy. May all the motions of the cross fill us right now. And may your power and presence, God, Let us see that salvation is ours in your Son, Jesus Christ. And the church says, Amen. I want to invite our ushers to come and serve us communion as we sing this song and reflect upon Jesus Christ as our very lives.